Good morning. Brothers and sisters, please uh, turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4. This morning we will be reading verses 12 and 13. That's 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. And please, uh, as you find that, please stand for the reading of God's word, as is our custom. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. In my family, there are those who love surprises and those of us who cave in to those who do. And let's be honest, the ones who love surprises are, well, the women. My wife and my sister-in-law in particular love to surprise people, particularly when it comes to celebrating birthdays that end in zero. They love to plan a party and for that party to be a surprise. Maybe there are people like that in your family. Of course, in our family, someone usually messes up. A little detail slips out in conversation, a communication gets left out in the open. So instead of being genuinely surprised, the person being surprised usually has to pretend to be surprised. But some of us love those sorts of surprises, don't we? The surprise proposal, the flowers for no reason, some of us love that sort of thing. For those of you who do uh, enjoy surprises, uh, you should be aware that as I was preparing for this sermon, I ran across a, an article entitled, Surprises, Good or Bad, Can Cause Your Heart to Break. And the article cited German scientists, so it can't be wrong, can it? So those of you who love surprises, just keep that in mind. But there is another aspect of surprise, uh, one that we're going to focus on this morning. Surprise can be dangerous and have disastrous effects. One of the goals of military planners is to achieve the element of surprise. They, do so, they try to do so when on the attack, but when they're on the defense, they try to avoid being surprised at all costs. In fact, in the United States, we have entire agencies of our government devoted to gathering intelligence so that we won't be surprised. Consider the morning of December 7, 1941, in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. The soldiers, sailors, and Marines at our bases there thought that it was just another day. It's just another Sunday, not realizing that there were six Japanese aircraft carriers in the process of launching 360 aircraft at them. They were surprised, and their lack of, prepare, of a prepared defense had a, de had a de devastating effect. 2,300 military personnel were killed, and the fighting power of the United States forces in the Pacific was severely diminished. Or maybe you can remember September 11, 2001. The people of the United States thought that it was just another Tuesday 
but 19 terrorists hijacked four airplanes, flew two of them into the World Trade Center and one into the Pentagon. About 3,000 people were killed and about 10,000 people were injured. The center of military power in the United States was damaged and a major symbol of America's economic might was destroyed. We were plunged into what some people are referring to as the forever war. In both the Pearl Harbor attack and on September 11, our, only our enemies knew that we were at war. We did not know it, and our lack of awareness resulted in a lot of damage. That principle is true in the spiritual sense as well, isn't it? We often forget that there's a war on. We are unprepared for attacks from the enemy, and disaster often results. This is why Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Now, some of you might have a translation that reads, uh, do not think it's strange at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And the word is rooted in the word strange. The Greek word is xenos. But the word Peter, as Peter uses it, comes from the idea of entertaining strangers, unexpected guests. And it is probably best translated as, do not be surprised. It conveys the idea of not being prepared for something. So why are we surprised? Why shouldn't we be surprised? And what can we do instead? Well, that's what we're going to study this morning as we kind of do an overview of the book of 1 Peter, but focus on primarily verse 12 in chapter 4. So before we begin, let's establish a little context for the passage. In 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, we find that Peter is writing to the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, a region that is sometimes known as Asia Minor, but we would recognize it as northern Turkey. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia were Roman provinces under the Roman system and would have been subject to the persecutions and trials common to believers in the Roman world. These congregations consisted primarily of Gentile believers, but Jewish believers were present as well, and these two groups would have been under slightly different pressures. Peter's believers were under persecution and grieved by various trials. Says, tells us that in 1 Peter 1, 6. One thing that we have to recognize is that these original readers lived in a system that did not practice the separation of church and state. New religions were viewed as superstitions and an assault against traditions passed down from parents to children. Christians were sometimes viewed as traitors and rebels. Emperor worship was also becoming a thing. In fact, some of the communities in this region were zealous for and early adopters of the emperor cult. Another thing that we should recognize is that the Roman culture was a synchristic one. That means that you could worship your own gods, but you had better respect and worship, if the occasion required it, the gods of others. You should especially be willing to say that Caesar was Lord, as well as Apollo, Diana, or Christ, whoever your gods were. Christians, and Jewish people for that matter as well, uh, were not willing to do so. So 
Christians in particular were labeled as traitors and rebels. Judaism was somewhat respected, somewhat, and, ex and it was exempted from these expectations. They were following their traditions of their fathers, which was a priority for uh, people in the Roman world. Judaism had been granted an exemption from celebrating in the emperor cult and other religious celebrations as well. So uh, this resulted in, but Christianity was becoming increasingly dis disassociated from Judaism. At the beginning, it was just thought, up as a, thought of as another sect of Judaism. But over time, um, Christianity came to be seen as a, a separate religion, and Gentile believers and Jewish believers alike could be accused of abandoning the traditions of their fathers and dangerous to the public order. If we look at the clues in 1 Peter, we can identify some of the various trials that these original hearers were facing. All of them lived in the situation that we just described. Some of them were slaves, many of whom served unbelieving masters. And you can imagine how Christianity would complicate the lives of those people who belonged to other people legally. Some were women who had been saved, but their husbands had not. Many were uh, wives of unbelieving husbands. If you look at 1 Peter 3.1, you can see that the directions given there are not just, for not just to wives in general, but specifically to wives of unbelieving husbands. Some perhaps were husbands of unbelieving wives. Many were reviled, subject to public and private humiliation. Also, from the evidence of other books in the New Testament and from historical records, we can gain further insight into the suffering that Peter's originals, uh, original hearers faced. Trade guilds often controlled who could work and make a profit in the various trades. These guilds were associated with various gods and pagan forms of worship, which involved sacrifices to these gods, feasting, drunkenness, and sexual sin. Not participating in these celebrations could mean that you were no longer allowed to make a living in that trade. Some trade guilds saw Christianity as a threat to their livelihood, if you remember in the book of Acts, and this led to persecution as well. Also, Christians could be cast out of their families and disinherited. It's one of the reasons why Peter spent so much time in 1 Peter talking about the inheritance that believers have. Jewish believers were often disowned and disavowed by their families and cast out of their synagogues. Since Christians asserted that there was only one God, they were regarded often as atheists and viewed as sacrilegious. Additionally, practices like communion and referring to one another as brother and sister in Christ were thought strange and led to accusations of cannibalism and incest. Because of these things, Christian, Christians were ridiculed, plundered, ostracized, and sometimes killed. They were viewed as outsiders and people who refused to, to live inside community norms. We should note, however, that the level of per persecution that the believers faced in Peter's world faced varied and widely uh, dis uh, different uh, levels of persecution. It depended on a lot on where you lived and who you were. Some people experienced persecution while others experienced very little. 
kind of similar to our world, is it not? Each region was subject to the varied characters and whims of Roman governors who had a tremendous amount of power and were given a huge amount of leeway in interpreting Roman law. And the Roman law was primarily geared toward protecting property, not on protecting people's religious freedoms. However, all of this was subject to change. Leadership and public attitudes could and did change very frequently. And you get the sense that Peter could see that the situation about was about to get worse. In fact, we know historically that's actually what happened. Persecution of Christians would become the official policy of the Roman Empire by the end of the first century. And let's just say that the situation into, into which Peter wrote has been and continues to be the situation of the church. What Peter has to say is for us, even though we live in the United States of America and have experienced very little persecution. So what is Peter's purpose in writing, 1 Peter, and these two verses that we're going to look at this morning as well? Peter was writing to encourage and build up believers as they faced various trials. In 1 Peter 5.12, he writes that he wants them to stand firm in the true grace of God. He wants that to prepare them for more suffering to come, suffering that he refers to as the fiery trial. Let's talk about that word for, for just a moment. The words fiery trial are actually one word in Greek. It, the, the, the original language uh, uh, is Greek, and the word is pyrose. We get our words pyre and pyromaniac from, from this word. It literally means the burning. This indicates the severity of the trial as felt by those in the trial. We should also note that Peter considers this burning to be inevitable. Peter says, when it comes upon you, not if it comes upon you. This burning is something that every believer will experience on some level. And this is the plain teaching of God's word. Jesus told us, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, John 16, 33. It is also the plain teaching of the apostles. Peter, Paul, all of the New Testament writers refer to this. Here's an example. In Acts 14, we read, When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is central to the teaching of the entire New Testament, that Christians will always face trials and tribulations. But is this fiery trial of which Peter speaks exclusive to persecution? It is that primarily. Some Christians will be called upon to give their lives for the faith. Some Christians will be called to poverty. In Hebrews, believers were reminded that in the early days of their faith, they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property since you knew that you yourselves had a better position, possession and an abiding one, Hebrews 10.34. Also, in the same passage in Hebrews, we are told that Christians are sometimes public, publicly exposed to reproach. Peter calls it being reviled. Imagine walking through the marketplace and being called, hey, there's one of those Christians 
when people make fun of you. Maybe that's happened to you at work, someplace like that. The fiery trial, excuse me, also in the same passage of, excuse me, the fiery trial can be loss of friends, loss of opportunities, or the loss of harmony in the home or in the marriage. The, fire, the fiery trial is primarily, in Peter's mind, per persecution in all its forms. But the fiery trial is not exclusively suffering due to persecution. In chapter 1, Peter speaks of various trials. And if you think about it, I think you could probably all identify something that's happened in your life that has been a fiery trial. Many of you have experienced this burning, even though it wasn't persecution. Here are some of these things. Sickness, disease, death. If you haven't already dealt with those, you know that these things are coming. These can be fiery trials. Family and marriage difficulties can burn us. Working in a fallen world can also be a fiery trial. Perhaps worst of all, church difficulties can burn us. People fall away. False teaching and doctrinal difficulties arise. And people don't behave the way that we think they should. Sometimes people don't even behave in churches the way that God commands them to. These things can be fiery trials. These things and can burn and do burn us. How can we avoid being burned by the fiery trials? Well, we can recognize that they will come, that we can, we can recognize that being surprised is a bad thing, and we can be prepared. So let's talk for a, minute, a little bit about why surprise is a bad thing. The apostle understood that surprise can cause devastation, dismay, and defeat. As we've already noted, being surprised uh, can be or is the equivalent of a military disaster. The Pearl Harbor attack in 1941 devastated the United States military forces in the Pacific. And those of you who are students of World War II or military history, you know that Allied fo forces weren't just surprised in Hawaii. They were surprised all around the Pacific Rim. Lives were lost. People were enslaved and imprisoned. The Allies experienced defeat in every theater of the war in 1941 and most of 1942. We, and we are all familiar with the consequences of our surprise on September 11, 2001. We continue to live with those consequences of being caught by surprise on that day. Being surprised can lead to dismay, destruction, and defeat on the spiritual level as well. And this is Peter's concern. In 1 Peter, his concerns seem to be three. They are apostasy, that is, falling away from the faith, caving in to the pressure from the outside world, and three, responding to persecution in sinful ways. Peter is concerned that a lack of preparation will lead believers to falling away. He sees their trials primarily as a test of their faith. This is the language that he uses to explain the purpose of their suffering. He was also present for the parable of the sower and Jesus' explanation of it in Matthew 13. We can find that in Matthew 13, 1 through 9, and Jesus' explanation in verses 18 through 23. He knew that there would be those who received the word with joy, but that it would have no root in them. 
He knew that there were those who would quickly fall away when trouble or persecution comes. He knew that the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth could choke the word, making it unfruitful. He was aware of all of these things. But we should note that although Peter was concerned about apostasy, it doesn't seem to be his primary concern. He's fairly confident that believers will stand. However, he is concerned about how the believers would respond to their trials. He wants them to respond in a principled, purposeful way. He wants them to be prepared. Peter primarily seems concerned that his, belief, his uh, hearers would cave in to the pressure and conform to their old ways of life. To put, it, to put it another way, he is concerned that they will go along to get along. When pressured to participate in pagan worship and the debauchery that would go along with that, the easiest way to deal with that pressure would just be to give in to it. It's the pattern of your, own, of, of your old life. He is concerned that they will re return to, as he puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18, the feudal ways inherited from their forefathers, and he warns against this. He reminds them that they have spent enough time doing what the Gentiles do, calling that behavior a flood of debauchery. And isn't it true that when we get into these sorts of situations uh, and we don't have the proper mindset, our knee-jerk reaction is to go along with the crowd. This is different from an outright denial of the faith, but it is dangerous and counterproductive. It's dangerous to us and counterproductive to our mission as believers in Jesus Christ. Another concern that Peter has is that when surprised by suffering, believers might respond in sinful and counterproductive ways. When they are mocked, reviled, made fun of, he reminds them to follow the example of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. 1 Peter 2, 23. He was concerned about retaliation. In 1 Peter 4, 15, he states, Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And imagine the temptation you might face as a young Christian in the Roman world when you couldn't make a living. Or someone killed one of your family members because they were a believer. You might be tempted to take the law into your own hands, so to speak. Peter seems primarily concerned that when believers face persecution, they don't respond using unlawful means to alleviate their suffering or to take revenge. They are not to murder or steal, and they are not to, com to commit malicious mischief. The point is this. Peter wants his, Peter, his, his readers to respond to suffering in a passionate and principled way. Not only is this safe for their own spiritual health, but it also protects the integrity of the church and its mission. That's why Peter speaks earnestly to citizens, servants, wives, and husbands. He calls on believers to be subject to every human institution, 1 Peter 2.13. Now I'd point out that the apostle Peter uh, was martyred under the hands of the Roman emperor Nero. 
But he specifically points out in Hebrews chapter 2 that we are to honor the emperor and those that are appointed to serve under him. He calls on believers to be subject to every human institution, 1 Peter 2.13. He calls on servants to be subject to their masters with all respect, not only to the good masters and the gentle ones, but also to the unjust, 1 Peter 2.18. He calls on women with unbelieving husbands to behave in such a way that these men might be one without the word, by their wives' conduct. Brothers and sisters, I think most of us would agree that it seems likely that in the coming years we will experience more and more persecution. We live, as some people say, in a post-Christian world. However, I think it's important that we study carefully passages like 1 Peter. We study the book of Revelation. We study Hebrews. And we make sure that we respond to the hostility, ridicule, and violence that we may be facing in a principled and purposeful way. Believers have an obligation to live godly lives that bear witness to the grace of God found in Jesus Christ, even in the face of persecution. I don't know about you, but when I'm suffering, I often am tempted to use that as an excuse to take a vacation from obedience to the Lord. And suffering is not an excuse to take a vacation from obedience to Christ. In fact, we are to see suffering not as an excuse from gospel ministry, but as an opportunity for the gospel. We are to be focused, aware, and alert to the opportunities that suffering presents. We also need to be aware of why we get surprised. We get surprised, well, for good reason. As believers in Jesus Christ, we see in him deliverance, a triumphant king, a benevolent ruler, a good shepherd. We see in him peace with God, joyful service, and eternal life. In him, we see the end of sin and death. In him, we see the restoration of all things. And we kind of expect the world to see things as we do. Our faith is rational, wholesome, and a good thing. But we forget that the reason we see things this way is that we have been given spiritual life. Our spiritual eyes work. Theirs do not. In fact, they are surprised at us and think that what we do is strange. So in one sense, our surprise is understandable, but we are surprised for bad reasons as well. First of all, we are deceived. We often think of the world as our friend, that it is fair, genuinely open-minded, and rational. That all we have to do is explain the gospel in the right way, and they will join with us. We are also complacent. At least in the West, we have been blessed. The impact of Christ and Christianity on our culture has been nothing but beneficial. Until recently, the Judeo-Christian worldview has been seen as a positive thing. People used to say things to us like, oh, I wish I had your faith. Wish I was like you. We, we, we experience that less and less. Also, we've been blessed in our personal situations. 
Almost all of us have been able to make a decent living. We've been blessed with material goods. We've been able to worship openly and freely. And if we are honest, we like things the way that they are, and we think that they will never change. But we forget that we are at war. We tend to be like our forces on Hawaii at 7.50 a.m. on December 7, 1941. We tend to be like the United States at 8.40 a.m. on September 1, 2001. We are at war, and we don't know it. This is why the Apostle Paul ends Ephesians with this reminder. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We tend to forget, brothers and sisters, that we are in a spiritual battle. And this is the reason why Peter feels the need to command us, do not be surprised. This is why Paul's us, Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, Ephesians 6.11. So the opposite of being surprised is being prepared. Here are a list of seven things not to be surprised about. We could probably come up with more, but here are seven and I, I uh, have to credit this to Pastor James Jennings of Texas for this idea. My list is not exactly his, but it is similar. Here are seven things not to be surprised about. First of all, and most obviously, don't be surprised when you experience persecution. The fiery trial that Peter is referring to here, as we've established, is primarily the suffering Christians face in the name of Christ for the name of Christ, for living openly and honestly as followers of Jesus. So don't be surprised when you are made fun of, ostracized by co-workers, or miss out on opportunities at work. Don't be surprised when government or workplace policies are in violation of God's word, but be prepared. Secondly, don't be surprised at your own sinfulness. Now, this may seem like a strange thing to not be surprised about, but haven't many of you experienced the fiery trial of being confronted with your own sinfulness? I am convinced that this is indeed a fiery trial for many of us. We reason like this. Am I not a, cre a new creature in Christ? Don't I have the Holy Spirit living in me? Why then am I struggling with these appallingly sinful actions or thoughts? We think something like this and wonder if we are truly believers in Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you think like that, in one sense, you are not wrong. Believers are indeed new creatures in Christ, and we do have the Holy Spirit living within us. And sin is dangerous and harmful, and we are called to do battle against it. But we need to remember that our sanctification is not complete, and we will be perfect, but we are not yet perfect. We will have a spiritual body, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, but right now we have this fleshly one. We ought not to be surprised when we struggle with sin. In fact, that struggle itself is evidence that the Holy Spirit is in us, 
and that we do have spiritual life. Thank God that your eyes have been opened to your sinfulness. Why do you think that so much of the Bible is full of commands and warnings against sin? It's because God's people are sinners. And we shouldn't be surprised by this and biblically deal with our sin. Don't let it throw you for a loop. Thirdly, don't be surprised at the sinfulness of your fellow Christians. What is true of you is also true of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't be surprised when you see them doing it wrong. This is a fiery trial for some of us more than others. We become aware of something that we perceive to be sin that is happening in the church, perhaps even something that our fellow believers do not see as sin, and it creates a severe trial for us. Perhaps it causes us to doubt the faith. Perhaps it causes us to withdraw from fellowship with God's people or from his service. That, brothers and sisters, is sin and flirting with spiritual disaster. That is not to say that there aren't times when we need to deal with sins and perceived sins in others, nor that there aren't times when believers need to withdraw from fellowship with other believers or even from particular churches. But I'd like you to consider why are there so many passages in Scripture that call on us to be kind, gentle, and long-suffering with one another? It's because God's people are not yet perfect. So do not be surprised when you see sins in your fellow Christians. Don't let that be a fiery trial that burns you. Fourthly, do not be surprised when people fall away from Christ. This can be a fiery trial for us, particularly if we've invested something in the people that fall away. It is a sad but true fact that people do walk away from the faith. Paul describes it in 2 Timothy. The author of Hebrews warns against it, as does James. Peter describes, or Jesus describes it in the parable of the sower. Also, we know that false teachers arise in the church. Pastors and famous teachers will rebel against the gospel and fall away. Brothers and sisters that we have enjoyed fellowship with will withdraw from that fellowship and return to the world. Indeed, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 state, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Remember, we are in a battle and that battle will extend even into the church. Once again, this is something to be prepared for, not surprised by. Fifthly, don't be surprised by the difficulty of your job. Work is good. Work is not a punishment. God created work before Adam and Eve fell. But the fall has indeed corrupted work, and we do not live, we do not live in a new heaven and a new earth just yet. God is in the process of restoring all things through Christ, but that process is not complete. So whether you work at home or at the office, don't be surprised when it's difficult. Sixthly, don't be surprised by injustice, tragedy, or conflict in the world or in the church. Peter hints that what, take, what is taking place in the world has something to do with judgment. In chapter 4, verse 17, he writes in the context of suffering for the name of Christ, he says, 
For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Once again, we live in a fallen and sinful world. The violence and destruction that we see are both a natural consequence of sin and God's judgment against sin. Do not be surprised or dismayed when you see these things happen. God is both just and merciful. He is working in and through the dis this destruction to restore all things to himself. Don't be surprised when you see the effects of his justice and his mercy. And seventhly, seventh and more briefly, don't be surprised when you lose your health. Once again, we live in a world where the consequences of sin are still in effect. Don't think it's strange when your body fails you. Look forward to the time when you will have a perfect spiritual body, and don't be surprised. So here's why we shouldn't be surprised, brothers and sisters. We have been forewarned, and we should be forearmed. The situation has been explained. There is a spiritual battle taking place in heavenly places, and there is one that's taking place on earth and in our lives as well. The Lord has told us, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The apostles have repeated this. Brothers and sisters, we ought to be prepared and not be surprised. So what should we do instead of being surprised? Well, first of all, we should understand that all this suffering is temporary. Peter reminds us that the various trials that we have are only for a little while, 1 Peter 1.6. We also should understand the purpose of suffering, and there are many, but one of the purposes of suffering is for testing. Peter says that the purpose of our trials is to test the genuineness of our faith. This is probably he, why he uses the imagery of burning. He has the crucible that jewelers use in mind. Proverbs 27, 21 reads, The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his prayers. It is in our trials that our faith is refined, purified, and perfected. It is also how we bear witness to our faith to one another and to the world. Thirdly, we should do this instead of being surprised. We should rejoice. That's what we're commanded to do. Our passage today has two commands. First of all, do not be surprised, but rejoice. Now, there are those among us who rejoice in the fact that we live in a post-Christian world. I have to admit, I admire these people, but I'm not there yet personally. These believers remind me of people I met in the, when I was in the army. These people rejoiced at the prospect of deployment to a combat zone. I suppose a few of them were what you would call bloodthirsty and foolish, but I believe that most of them were just looking forward to getting to do what they had trained their entire lives to do. This is my purpose. I admire that. I'm also reminded of the volunteer firemen I knew in high school. 
My father was one of those. These men delighted to hear the fire siren sound. They raced to the station so that they could get there first. They got to drive the truck if they got there first. They enjoyed suiting up and going to battle against whatever emergency had appeared. And some Christians are like that. I've heard that same kind of attitude from some Christian leaders. They'll, you'll hear them say things like, well, at least it'll be easier to distinguish between believers and unbelievers. Or our testimony and our lives will just stand out more in this world. And I guess that that's a healthy attitude. And I wish I could share it. Um, I'll tell you what kind of a soldier I was. I was the kind of soldier that was relieved when my Army Reserve unit did not get called up for Desert Storm. And I didn't join the volunteer fire department like my brothers did because it, all that stuff was uncomfortable. You had to wear it sweaty. I don't delight in those sorts of things. But thankfully, God has not commanded us to rejoice in this particular sort of, sort of way. Another reason that we can rejoice in our trials is because our eyes have been opened. Like Asaph in Psalm 73, we see our suffering, but we also see the position of the ungodly who persecute us. Thankfully, we have been made aware that we are in a spiritual battle and that this is taking place, and as well as we've been made aware of our place in it. But that isn't what Peter had in mind either when he commands us to rejoice. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. We rejoice because our suffering means that we are Christ's and that we have a place among his people. It means that we have a place in his plan and a part in his victory. I think often of that scene in Revelation chapter 5, which I consider to be one of the most glorious passages in all of Scripture. Maybe you remember it. We hear that no one has been found who is worthy to open the scroll. John begins to weep, and one of the elders that's standing there before the throne says to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And when we turn to see the lion, what do we see? We don't see a lion. We see a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Christ's victory and his reward came through his suffering. And brothers and sisters, we can rejoice in our suffering because this is how we win too. If we share in Christ's sufferings, we share in his reward. So do not be surprised, but rejoice. I would just like to close by turning to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. Hebrews 10, 32 through 39 read, but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you were endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves 
had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is your great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. Brothers and sisters, do not be surprised, but rejoice. May God bless the preaching of his word.